The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. We're in Exodus 13. Verse 17 is where we're going to start, and we're going to be going through uh, chapter 14 as well. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of God. Good morning. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord God, we are a people, we confess, we are a people who are needy. We are a people who are fearful. We are a people with enemies. We are a people who have been saved from captivity. We are a people who are still not home. So we ask that you would minister to us this morning, Lord. Speak to us through your words. Guide us just as you guided the Israelites. I pray that my words would adorn your words and that uh, we would see Jesus Christ clearly in these verses. I ask it in his name. Amen. Where does your faith go when you encounter difficulty? Hopefully it goes to prayer. That's a good natural inclination. But what about when your prayers aren't answered immediately? Or what if matters seem to take a turn for the worse? What do you start to think about at those times? Maybe you think that you must not be perceiving God's guidance clearly. 
or correctly. Maybe you think that you must have taken a wrong turn somewhere along the line. Maybe you think that Satan seems to be winning because, well, what other explanation could there be for this sustained trouble or pain? Or maybe you're tempted to take it as a sign that God isn't with you or that God isn't trustworthy because how could a good God ever allow whatever it is? Or maybe you just shut down and you decide not to think about God because it's easier to compartmentalize your life and then, admittedly in an unsatisfactory way, let God off the hook by eliminating him from consideration. Well, today we're going to remember the good news that God neither needs nor wants to be let off the hook because his deliverance from harm is way more comprehensive and miraculous and purposeful than we often have eyes to see. And these events in the Exodus, they show us a clear message, a message that says we must trust the God who leads his people into danger and distress in order to destroy their enemies forever. Trust the God who leads his people into danger and distress in order to destroy our enemies forever. That's where we're going today. And where we need to start is just seeing that we do serve a God who is active in leading his people. He is himself our leader and our king. In chapter 13, verse 17, we see that it's God. It's not Moses. It's not a popular vote that decided which way the people would go. And his decision is not a very expected one. Because in those days, if you're traveling from Egypt into Canaan, there's a clear path. It's right around the edge of the sea. We've got a map of that. So look at that, that turquoise line there. That's the way everyone would go. That route was an established trade route. It was seven and a half miles wide. So there was plenty of space for even a massive migration of people. It would have been the quickest, the straightest, the easiest way into the land. But that's not the way they would go. And we're told the reason for that. God knew that they would encounter war more quickly if they went that way. And then they would grow disheartened. And then they would want to return to Egypt. Because this people, they'd been born in slavery. That's all they had ever known. They had no idea of the challenges that lay ahead in the land that they were going to. All they could handle mentally and emotionally at the time was, we've got to get out of Egypt. We've got to get out of Egypt. And then you're going to throw at them some other foreign armies coming out to fight them. God in his wisdom knew that it wasn't time for that. Throughout the travels of the wilderness generation, so in other words, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we're going to see that, that sometimes the long way around is the best way. Sometimes what seems to us to be hard or unnecessary is actually God's way of developing our faith and preparing us for challenges that lay ahead, that we have no clue are ahead of us. And maybe you can think back to some situations in your own life, that if you had taken the easy path the path that you thought you were going on, you see in hindsight that it actually would have been your undoing. I think that's true for all of us in different ways. If we could actually see God's leadership in our lives, his guidance over the years, we could think back to various situations, we would be amazed at how kindly he has guided us away from the easy ways we wanted in situations where we actually would have been overwhelmed. Our faith would have been overwhelmed 
if it had worked out the way we had wanted at the time. So God is the unmistakable leader. He is the wise guide. He is the faithful leader. But throughout Exodus, we also see that God's leadership makes use of people, including Moses. Remember all that royal training that Moses had when he, because he was the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter? Well, now we see that he's going to put those military and administrative skills to use. And we have a reference here about how Israel went up out of the land organized in some sort of military formation. God is leading through Moses. And God also led his people by still utilizing the forward thinking of his servant Joseph from 400 years earlier. And we see this in verse 19. It it makes mention that Moses took the bones of Joseph and um, with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear that, uh, sorry, just uh, solemnly swear to take um, his bones up with him. He said, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So Joseph's bones in Egypt, they had for generations been this reminder to the people that this is not your home. This is not where we belong. And then now that they're on this journey, Joseph's bones are still a reminder. His mummified remains that they're carting around somehow. It would Every time people saw that in the procession, they would be thinking, oh, wait a minute. There is a promised finish line. And... Us getting there is so certain even that our distant ancestor, Joseph, banked his burial on that fact. And we see in the, at the end of the book of Joshua, Joseph's bones are finally buried at Shechem on a, plant, a plot of land that had belonged to his father, Jacob, or Israel. So that's kind of a story within the story, and that's a great reminder to us of the reliability of God's leadership. Now notice that God leads his people here in two unmistakable ways. One is just by speaking to his prophet Moses. God speaks to Moses, Moses speaks to the people. And later Moses would write it down, which is why we have this book even. Uh, So we see God's verbal guidance. For example, chapter 14, verse 2, he, he tells Moses where they're going, what they should do, and Moses tells the people. But there's a second way that God is leading his Exodus people. We see this fiery cloud. We read that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And a pillar of fire to give them light um, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the, the people. So most scholars think that this was actually a pillar of like a fiery core at the middle surrounded by smoky cloud. So the effect is that during the day, the part you're going to see is the cloud. And then at night, the fiery core shines through and that's, um, that provides visibility for them. And uh, scholars think that because of how it's described later in chapter 14, but also because then when you get to Mount Sinai, and, and the cloud descends on, on Mount Sinai, it's described as burning with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. So now imagine if you had a pillar like that, fiery, gloomy, cloud, smoky, man, like that's pretty straightforward guidance, isn't it? You're not going to mistake which way you're going to go. Oh, there it goes. Um, it's straightforward guidance as was the Lord's word to to Moses. Well, the Apostle Paul likens that pillar to how we are led by the Holy Spirit. Just like them, 
we are guided by the word, we are guided by the spirit. And I wonder if sometimes we don't overcomplicate that, the process of God's guidance. Because if we're actually submitted to God, his guidance isn't some super subtle, hard to discern phenomenon. If it's a matter that God actually feels a need to direct us on, he doesn't leave that ambiguous. For the Israelites, the guidance was actually clear and unmistakable, and it is for us too. It's just often we don't like that that guidance hasn't led us away from difficulty. And we see that with the start of chapter 14. We notice something else about the Lord's leadership of his liberated people. Unexpectedly, we're going to see that he reserves the right to lead them into danger and distress. Now, we remember that the people were redeemed at Passover, and, and with the consecration of the firstborn, this is a way of God saying, I've paid the price, you are mine. And we've talked about how we, as Christians, were bought with a price. We're not our own. So, at least on paper, we, we acknowledge God has the right to do with us as he pleases. But really, should we just be okay with him leading us into situations of danger and distress? Yes, for at least two reasons. First, if we're able to scope out and see things from a cosmic level, and if we're able to see what's actually going on in the unseen realms, and if we're able to see things in the timeline of eternity, what we would notice, what we realize is that if we are with him, then we're actually never in danger. And second, we also can entrust ourselves to his guidance because we know Yahweh's character. We know that he is good. And so we do trust this God. So at Yahweh's direction, they turn south and perhaps a little bit west because they're on the Egypt side of the sea. And from a human perspective, this makes absolutely no sense. It's not closer to the promised land. It's not further from Pharaoh. It's, uh, it's actually closer to the very sort of military opposition that chapter 13, verse 17 said that Yahweh wanted to spare them from. So what's the goal here? We're told, Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. This turn south is, is a horrible military strategy, so it's going to entice the Egyptians to think that the Hebrews are ripe for the picking. And why is that a good thing? Because, God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We've been talking for weeks about how clearly Exodus shows us God's desire to make himself known. This is the greatest good in the universe, that this one who, who is the perfection of all good qualities would be revealed to, would make himself available to humanity. That is the greatest good, and his providence in our lives works to that end. It works towards that goal that, that we would know him better, and that through his presence and work in our lives, others would know him better as well. Do you see that as the greatest good? Do you see that as your greatest good? Even if it makes your life feel unsafe or downright terrifying at times. And terrified the Israelites were. Not only Pharaoh, but all of his officials took the bait. This isn't just a story of a single madman driving things. This, the whole ruling class is in on this. And maybe they'd had time after the Passover to think about it. Like, wait a minute, how is our economy going to survive without the slaves? Or maybe they were just angry. They just wanted revenge. Or maybe it was 
their pride getting the, the better of them. They, they refuse to let their grandiose empire be humbled. And so they bear down on the people of Israel. They have 600 chosen chariots. They have other chariots. They have horsemen. They have foot soldiers in the rear. Just imagine looking up from your camp by the sea and you see this, the fiercest military coming down on you quickly. They have cutting-edge technology. Chariots were a big deal back then. Maybe for us, you can imagine tanks. And they're coming straight for you and your elderly parents and your little kids. And God had specifically led you to that place. How do you reconcile that? Well, verse 10 tells us that initially they responded well. When the Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's the right move. It's okay to be afraid and confused, but what do you do with that? Hopefully you don't just run over it and over in your mind. You don't just stew about it. You also don't um, stuff it and become dead inside. No, instead you cry out to the Lord, just like a child would cry out to his good father because God is here and because God does care. So good inclination for the people of Israel. But where they go next isn't so positive. In fact, Psalm 106 says that the people rebelled by the sea in unbelief. Rebelled, that's, that's a strong word. And the form of their rebellion is grumbling and catastrophizing. Grumbling feels like a small thing, right? I'm just, I'm just complaining. I'm just complaining a bit. But think about it. It's a declaration that God doesn't know what he's doing. It's saying, I'm entitled to better than that. I have a right to be mad at him. Do those thoughts sound wise? Do those thoughts sound innocent? Grumbling is dangerous. And catastrophizing, letting your mind race to the future and the certain horror that awaits you there. Oh, really? You know the future now? Where's God in that equation? I'll tell you, God is taken out of the equation. Anxiety takes him out of the equation. And that's a manifestation of unbelief. It's incredible. These are the same people who had just witnessed the ten plagues on Egypt. They'd just been protected and delivered through the Passover, but they have such a short memory. And then they turn and they attack Moses. They say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is it not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Notice the insanity of that. It just overtakes their perspectives. When we're afraid, when we don't trust God, we can literally convince ourselves that we wish we were enslaved to evil rulers rather than to feel unsafe at that moment. How many people have run back to addictions or run into divorce or run away from the church just because they crave to not feel vulnerable anymore? They lose perspective. They chase after any solution that will take away the discomfort, unable to see why God has led them into that position. They don't want to wait to see that play out. Well, God led the Israelites into a trap of sorts, and he did it for his own glory. And in time, they would see not only how safe they'd been all along, but also how now they are victorious because of what they went through at the Red Sea. That's the big picture of what's going on. And how might that reality help us 
to have perspective with our own lives, the struggles we face, even the struggles in the life of our church. How do you react when you feel yourself in danger or in distress? How do you feel when you've been submitting to God's leadership and it seems to leave you terribly vulnerable? Do you grumble? Do you catastrophize? Do you lash out at those who are reminding you of God's leadership? We have to develop a longer memory. This is the God who's already shown his power in our lives. He's already spoken clearly about his goal in our lives to make himself known. So will you not wait and watch and trust him as he does that? And what we see next is something that's well worth the wait. In the Old Testament, there are over 25 references to the Red Sea. And that's because the events that are about to unfold were, again, part of that good news of deliverance that Israel would need to remember from generation to generation because God was committed to destroy their enemies forever. Moses responds to the people's horror and unbelief by preaching good news to them. He says, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And then we hear the Lord instruct Moses on the plan of salvation he's about to work through him. He says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So the people are going to have a clear path forward. That's, that's taken care of. But remember, there's another point to all of this. Verse 18, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So as the action begins, the angel of the Lord, who is in the fiery cloud, moves and drops right between the Egyptians and the Israelites. You know, if I was an Egyptian... I mean, were it not for the whole hardening of heart thing, you would think that the Egyptians would turn back right at that point. This is a little bit uh, hard to explain. Like, hmm, uh, strange weather we're having tonight. But they don't turn back. Because God has decided that it's time for their judgment. And so he's removed some common grace from them. I don't know whether it's their logic that, that becomes distorted or their self-awareness just goes missing. Maybe they, they just, they're so angry that they don't care about outcomes anymore. I'm not sure. But what we need to understand is that none of us are as bad as we would be if it weren't for God's grace constantly at work in our lives, even the lives of unbelievers, tempering their actions, causing them to share in a measure of the peace that, that he intends for humanity. But if God chooses to remove those stops, that common grace, which he, he can remove any time, it's his gift, if he chooses to remove that, then what we're left with is for the true intentions of the unbelieving heart to plunge us headlong into our own destruction, as was the case for these Egyptians. So, the pillar is in place. Moses then does as the Lord says. He stretches out his hand over the sea. And verse 21 says, And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. Now, we don't know exactly where this occurred. It's, it was likely a finger of the Gulf of Suez uh, since the people crossed in one night. Um, and the actual crossing of the sea, it's reported in a fairly straightforward manner. 
uh, it says it just says the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. No other details. I know in the animated film Prince of Egypt, the people can see like fish swimming around um, next to them. I'm not sure if that's what it was like, but however you imagine it, it must have been frightening, right? It's not a straight path across. If you, if you take the water out of a giant lake or sea, it's not a straight path. It would go down, down. It would be rocky in the dark and then up again. So it's worth saying that in the ancient Near Eastern worldview, um, water was the realm of chaos. We talked about this a little bit in our Job series. Uh, maybe you've thought about it in, in regard to Jonah also. Jo- Jonah reads to, to an Israelite like a horror story to fall into the depths like that. Um, water was the realm of chaos, the place where evil and death were lurking. And um, so, so, so there would have been fear just to, to even approach that. And then there's the sound of the water, the sound of the wind. There would have been maybe the sound of the fiery clouds still. There's so much sensory going on. Then later in the night, as the dawn approached, there'd be the sound of the, the Egyptian shouts and horses and chariots rolling closer every minute. Imagine what incredible faith it took for them to, to just keep moving along this path. And their obedience was declaring to each other and still declares to the world Yahweh's supremacy over nature, over danger, over every fear that we might have. It likely wasn't a narrow passageway because you had to get up to three million people across. It might have even been a few miles wide. And maybe it's because of that, because of the, the width of the passage, or maybe combined with the darkness, not being able to see the, the full threat as clearly. Maybe that's what enticed the Egyptians to pursue them. But as morning came, the mistake became clearer and clearer to the Egyptians. In the dawn light, their forces, probably the horses also, were getting spooked. Um, their chariot wheels start breaking or, or collecting too much moisture. And then there's this recognition at some point, like, wait a minute. We were chasing, we're pursuing the Israelites, but what if their God is pursuing us? Must have been a moment of horror. And notice that the ruin of the Egyptians occurs at daybreak, the very time when they would have looked to Ra, their sun god, to dawn and and rise to their aid. But no, the way that they're executed, drowning, it's the same fate to which they had subjected the Israelite male infants who were taken and drowned in the Nile. And drowning seems to have been the most shameful death in ancient Egypt, much like crucifixion was to the Romans. Archaeologists have found an interesting inscription. It says, He whom the king has loved will be a revered one, but there is no tomb for a rebel against his majesty, and his corpse is cast into the water. Well, now Yahweh is setting the record straight on exactly who is king, exactly who is the loved one, and exactly who is the rebel against his majesty who will end up in a watery grave. Yahweh, the majestic one, tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea once more. He does, and we read that the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. 
not one of them remained. So all the hosts that had followed him into the sea, it seems likely maybe the infantry didn't all go in, um, just the chariots and cavalry. And so there would have been a lot of witnesses to take back the account of that day. And then it wouldn't have been long before that report would travel throughout the Middle East along the trade routes. And what would participating in these events have done for Israel? They, they were terrified of their enemies, and then they saw them dead on the seashore. Verse 31 tells us, Israel saw the great power of the Lord that he used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And what about us? Where do we find ourselves in this story? We see how the Red Sea was good news for the ancient Israelites, but how is it good news for us? Well, we've got a people fleeing from slavery, and they pass into the waters, and they come out alive on the other side with their enemies destroyed forever, and then they journey together to a realm of lasting inheritance. Does that remind you of anything? 1 Corinthians 10, in recalling the Red Sea, it says, Our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, the Apostle Paul uses the language of baptism to describe passing through the sea. And he calls it a baptism into Moses as their leader. And then in Romans 6, Paul describes a similar reality for us. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized not into the sea, but into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. And then the next chapters of Romans go on to elaborate more what it means that we are no longer slaves to sin and that in Christ we are more than conquerors over any pursuing enemy. There's more that comes out of our baptism into Christ, isn't there? Not just deliverance from slavery, not just the total defeat of the enemy of our souls, but also there's new life. There's a fresh start just like there was for the people of Israel. Jesus was raised from the dead that we might walk in newness of life. The life we live, we now live in him. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. New creation. Do you remember at the creation, in Genesis chapter 1, the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. But the spirit, Hebrew word ruah, was hovering or literally fluttering over the face of the waters. So the spirit there is described both like a wind and also like a bird. And then God speaks and then creation happens. First comes light and then the waters are separated and dry land appears. Okay, fast forward seven chapters. Then the flood waters are subsiding in the time of Noah. What do we see? We see a dove flying back over the waters bringing an olive branch that announces the arrival of a fresh start, dry land, a new creation. Fast forward to Exodus 14. The Israelites seem trapped to go back into slavery and a certain death at the edge of the sea. 
but God is actually bringing about a fresh start, a new people through whom he will bless the whole earth. So what does he do? The Lord drove back the sea by a strong wind. Hebrew word, same as spirit, ruah. And he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And then we fast forward to Jesus in Matthew 3, and the text explicitly shows us he has no need of baptism because baptism was associated with repentance. This guy is without sin, and yet Jesus tells John, it's fitting for me to pass through the waters of baptism. And as he comes up, the Spirit comes down like a dove over the water and rests on him, identifying Jesus as the place of a new creation. It's by being baptized into him that we would all find new life. Jesus is the greater Moses. The Red Sea was an event prophecy of his death and resurrection. Only there is a big difference. Jesus actually plunged fully into the waters of judgment so that we could walk across on dry ground into the new creation. The people then believed in the Lord and trusted in Moses, his servant. But now in the new covenant, we have a better mediator, a greater Moses. So will you believe in the Lord and trust his servant, Jesus? He himself was our Passover sacrifice. He purchased you from slavery to sin. And by his resurrection, he brings you out on the other side of destruction, having destroyed your enemies in the process. But what enemies are we talking about? We need to visit that. We don't have physical tyrants. We don't have chariots bearing down on us. Or even if we did, like the Jewish people had the Roman oppressors in Jesus' day, that wasn't Jesus' main focus, was it? His exodus through death and resurrection swept away the enemies of our souls. Jesus has disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities so that no weapon against you can ultimately prosper. And so, if the schemes of Satan are sunk, how much more the schemes of man? As Psalm 118 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Our God has ensured that we will not return to slavery to sin. He's bought us. He's brought us by his resurrection into new life. He has decisively defeated the enemies of our souls. And then that leaves us asking, well, what's left for me to do? Let verses 13 to 14 ring in your ears. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. This was the pattern for them at the Red Sea and this is the same pattern for our salvation today. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Be silent. Which of those do you need to hear today? Is there a situation in your life that leads you into a fight or flight mentality? When we try to control the situation, we're essentially saying God's not doing a good job so I have to step in. We're rejecting our leader, Jesus, in that moment, just like the Israelites rejected Moses. But if we'll keep our lips from grumbling, if we'll say no to fear and hiding, if we'll stay where we are, if we'll watch and wait, then we will see the salvation of the Lord. 
And we've hinted already that the Red Sea should always make us think about our baptism and the spiritual reality that it represents of us passing through death with Christ and coming up safe on the other side. That's our origin story as Christians. But it's also more than that. It's our day-to-day reality. How should we as Christians respond to the depths that we're pinned up against? What do we do in situations that seem to be trapping us between what feels like slaughter or drowning? We can remember some of the words that we prayed this morning from 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says, We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So what sort of danger or distress makes you ask whether you're outside of God's plan or whether you're following the wrong leader or, or maybe Satan has spoiled God's plans because this just doesn't seem to fit with my idea of a God of love? Well, whatever other factors are in play, the fact of the matter is that we are where we are because God has led us here. For the Israelites, the guidance was actually easy and unmistakable, and it is for us too. It's just that we often don't like it. But the Red Sea speaks of God's total commitment to win victory over his enemies. And if the Israelites hadn't found themselves there, trapped and clueless, then there would have been no final defeat of the power that had enslaved them. And that's what God wants for you too. He sees the sin that pursues you. He sees the enemies that seek to trap you. And he does have a plan to get glory over them and to set you free. So you need to commit today to trust the God who leads his people into the depths in order to destroy our enemies forever. Let's ask for his help with that. Our great God, we see your power, we see your goodness, we see your wisdom in how you lead your people, in how you defend your people, in how you use every fearful thing in their lives for good. You use it to free them from sin. You use it to free them from the enemies of our souls. We thank you that you've done this decisively in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are united with him in his crossing of the sea, in his death and resurrection. Thank you that he has brought us up safely on the other side. Lord, we ask for grace to live in that reality. We ask for grace that as the troubles of life come our way, as we feel lost and hopeless, that we would look back to the Red Sea, that we would look back to the cross, that we would see that you are always with us and there is no danger. Help us to follow our leader. Help us to trust Jesus. And Lord, we praise you because we know that the victory is yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.